you'd like to impose your notion of safety and comfort on people who've already been living here and who have had to develop their own culture of safety in your absence with the crappy infrastructure that you left them with. And so it's an imposition of values that can be resolved, um, that requires a bit of process. How much community input do you think is right? There is a question of access for everybody. And then there's a question of the community dictating what their roads look like. People don't want to have a busy roadway cutting right in front of their house. A lot of times Mm -hmm. it's communities that are outside that put political pressure and then that roadway becomes a four lane highway through somebody's neighborhood. You know, my black life, your white life, every other colored life um, meets at this intersection of, of the construct. And how can we together basically create more ground truths about what our realities are so that we can um, not only have bike lanes, but so that we can exist in communities that are more sustainable and healthier. Let's start the show. So this is Bike Talk Live on the KPFK live stream now on Zoom because of our COVID situation. We we can't be in the studio together, but we are on Zoom. So, uh, you know, uh, our first guest today is Betsy Medvedovsky, and she is a concerned cyclist. So she's she's going to be our first guest on a new segment we call uh, Route Club, which is a segment where we are discussing routes and in particular in Los Angeles, because that's where sort of Nick and I are based, but we're open to discussing routes across, you know, across California and across the United States. Um, And in particularly with regard to cycling and safe cycling through those, through routes, strategies and so forth for getting through tough uh, streets that are, often hostile towards cyclists that are sort of designed with car traffic in mind. So uh, we were talking on, on Facebook and uh, Betsy had posed uh, the question of uh, getting from the Hollywood area to uh, North Hollywood or, you know, uh, over the hill through the Coinga Pass, which is kind of a notorious corridor, in my opinion, um, and it is a corridor that parallels the 101 freeway. And a lot of times what engineers will do is they will run a freeway through an area and then they kind of run the side streets that parallel that freeway. They will start to redesign those to be overflow streets and those often become hostile. So some of the other examples I could think of is like Riverside Drive alongside the five or the 110 freeway, you've got Figueroa, which is pretty hostile, and uh, Colorado along the 134. So Betsy had uh, asked about Coinga Pass. And um, Betsy, uh, welcome to the show. And I see that you have Hazel mm-hmm. with you. You're, you're yeah, thank you. six, six month old, right? With, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, I'm your host, Don Ward, and this is Nick Richard with uh, Bike Talk. And uh, let's, let's talk. Let's talk route 
selection. Let's talk uh, what you had in mind when you posed that question. Well, like I love having, this is like the best reason to have Facebook is to ask like questions like this and get like group mm -hmm. wisdom on best routes. Um, like I remember I used to live in Atlanta and me and my friend would just pour over like the map and try to decide like best bike routes. And of course it's like so much more, so much more input when you get, when you get on Facebook. But um, yeah, I was just planning actually a WPA route, like a New Deal buildings route through LA for my friends. And there was one building in Hollywood I wanted to see and one building in Burbank. So I was like, is this reasonable to go through Coenga Pass? And it doesn't have to be at all and if, if it's not reasonable, then there's no reason to do it. And um, I got some really good feedback, good answers on Facebook on the, um, I guess it was the Bike LA group. Yeah, like a number of people uh, chimed in and kind of gave their thoughts on the route, right? Yeah, it was very useful. And, um, you know, giving specific ideas about north versus south, as well as detours. Um, it was very useful as well. Well, what did they say? I think that the consensus was, please correct me if I'm wrong, um, that going north is easier, is better than going south. That was the number one thing. And then a few people recommended specific routes that would go more through the hills. Um, you know, I think it's always a balance of when you're trying to get advice about what, you know, I'm, I'm an okay cyclist. I'm not like super thirsty for giant hills, but I'm trying to push myself. Um, and I'll definitely, and I, I ride on the street all the time. So, you know, you're also trying to gauge where people are at in terms of where they're cycling. Cause I know amazing cyclists who basically never bike on the street or will do everything that they can to avoid um, like being in street traffic. Um, so it's interesting because you're also trying to get like gauge where people are coming from in the comments, like what kind of a biker they are, you know? Right. Um, that corridor used to carry the, the old red car line and it had a, a road that, uh, paralleled the red car line. And I believe that road was on the, uh, west side of the tracks. And then another road uh, followed on the east side, but it was, um, as far as I could tell from, from early photography, it was a little less developed on that side. And uh, as they took away the red car and put, put a freeway through there, um, those two roads became rough um, in terms of both the pavement and in terms of the fact that they redesigned the uh the road to kind of carry more traffic so um you know like heading northbound to actually to get to that northbound section you got to do coenga and there's some bike lanes there but then they disappear um right around where the uh the hollywood bowl bridge is a little tunnel right there and then you're kind of just thrown into this crazy um, traffic. Did you did you end up actually riding it, or did you guys decide to skip that and take the subway? You know, we ended up doing a completely different route. Um, sorry about that. 
we ended up, we had another biker join us and um, we wanted to keep it a lot more bike friendly. Okay, Hazel, sorry. Um, so we ended up just going on along the Bologna um, Creek path and biking around in Venice. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, but it's good knowledge to have in the future. I mean, and it was just like very efficient. That's what I liked about it. Yeah. Because um, people really like to weigh in on their own experience. Well, we're going to try to, you know, do that here on the show, too. Yeah, we're going to try know. and figure out better ways of visualizing for, uh, you know, an audio uh, centric audience of how to how to best uh, talk about these routes as well. So if we have anybody out there that's listening to this podcast, um, we'd love for your feedback and uh, to uh, discuss this this feature more because I think this could be really useful for folks um, to discuss and strategize about ways to get around LA by bike in, in their own cities. So thanks, thanks Betsy for coming on. Thanks so much for and, having uh, me. Give my, best, Thanks, give my best to Olsen. He's, we used to ride together on, on Wolfpack. So, okay. uh, All right. All um, right. Thanks. Stoked for you guys. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Bye. Yeah, we got we to gotta work on this. Maybe we can, there's some way we can use Zoom visuals too to kind of use Google Maps or something like that. Right, Nick? Yeah. I'm sure there's lots that could be done to give give the listener the feeling that of, because what she was describing is one of the hairiest places to ride in it's LA. it's yeah so I've experienced i actually grew up in that in that corridor and uh what they've done is they they made that that little corridor a uh de facto connection between two freeways in the region so they've over time butchered that whole area up and it's like a residential, you know, there's a lot of apartment buildings and people, but they have traffic speeding through there. And it's, uh, it's pretty gnarly what, what the LADOT does to, uh, to certain corridors and especially corridors where, you know, they're, it's, it's, it's like the corridors that get beat up the most are the ones where you're going to find the least, political opposition to doing so and um that kind of brings us to um our, our next guests um our next mm -hmm. guest is is uh, dr destiny thomas who will be talking about um transportation equity and, and racial equity and um right now we're going to go to headlines with have a go our our uh roving news reporter ternick Hi everyone, it's Taranik from Have A Go here with your weekly bike news. We start off this week with two stories out of New York. First, the number of people participating in Black Lives Matter protests on bicycles in New York City continues to increase, numbering in the thousands. Initially intended to bring together a few hundred participants, these two-wheeled protests reached an estimated 10,000 people a few weeks ago. Second, the Big Apple reimagines its streets. The not-for-profit Regional Plan Association out of New York put forth a master plan of 425 miles of high-capacity protected and connected bike lanes throughout the five boroughs. Another plan, this time to address river crossings, was released by a group of transportation engineers led by the city's former traffic commissioner. This proposal comprised of sleek, car-free bridges in and out of Manhattan. Over in Europe, bicycle ridership continues accelerating, 
fueled by wariness of public transport due to COVID, sustainability concerns, health benefits, continued electrification with scooters and e-bikes, micromobility sharing providers, and government rebates. Huge strides are being taken by cities in infrastructure across the continent with almost a thousand new miles of bicycle lanes. While most bicycle infrastructure is considered politically infeasible, Mayor Anne Hidalgo of Paris recently won re-election by wide margins on a platform of turning every street in the city into a bike-friendly street as part of a larger vision of a 15-minute city where you can find everything you need within 15 minutes from home. These plans include removing 72% of on-street car parking. The European insurance provider Bikemo finds that electric bicycles might actually be less risky than their conventional counterparts, resulting in 38% fewer insurance claims. Thanks to these new findings, the insurance provider now charges less to insure e-bikes. Last week, the Small Business Administration released the names of bike companies and nonprofits which received Paycheck Protection Program loans, ranging from $150,000 to $5 million. BicycleRetailer.com lists the companies and nonprofits along with the number of people employed at each. Here in Los Angeles, the nonprofit Walk and Rollers is making it easier for kids to cycle by giving away pre owned bikes to kids in need. To donate a bicycle or to sign up for a free kids' bike, visit walkmorebikemore.com. That's it for this week. For daily urbanism and micromobility news and updates, you can follow us on Twitter at HaveAGo. Thank you. That was news from Terranig with Have A Go. And now we're going to bring on our next guest, Destiny Thomas, if I can see down there. Hey, Destiny. Hi, Hi. thank you for having me. So Destiny Thomas is the, I'm going to read your bio here. Destiny Thomas is the founder and chief executive officer of Thrivance Group. Um, she is an anthropologist planner from Oakland, California, whose areas of interest include racial equity, implementing the dignity-infused community engagement methodology, anti-displacement studies, healing environmental and infrastructural trauma, and bolstering agency and voice in marginalized communities with municipal planning processes. So um, you launched a, uh, you launched Thrivance Group uh, in the last couple of years, right? Yeah, so the Thrivance Group, um, very long story short, is actually the second iteration of the Thrivance Project. Uh, when I was in uh, my graduate program, I was studying the connection between trauma and eventually the built environment. I didn't have the language or the narrative for it um, w when I started my research, but um, very quickly, I learned that, you know, my study of trauma and my desire to heal, not just the Black community, but um, Latinx parents in Los Angeles actually um, had a lot to do with what was happening in the built environment. And so I was doing healing circles. And when people would tell each other about, you know, go sign up, I was giving away incentives. And they would always refer to me as, you know, the girl that's doing that Thrivance project the name of the theory was Thrivance. And so they would always call it the Thrivance Project, just go sign up. And so I've always, um, for the last oh, over 10 years, less than 10 years, um, I've carried the term Thrivance Project through my studies, through my research. And so it's been here for a while. 
And when I finally decided I no longer wanted to lend myself uh, to civil service, I revived that name and just found that it made more sense to call it the Thrivance Group because I had um, a couple of other visions that I wanted to anchor to the work. Right on. So, you know, tell us a little bit more about the philosophy behind the group. Like, what, what are the goals? The Thrivance Project, really, or the Thrivance Group, is rooted in this theory that really gets to um, the interlocking, we call them the interlocking attributes that propel us to thrive. And so taking a step back, Thrivance theory is rooted in intersectionality theory, which is um, the, the, the work of the wonderful Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, intersectionality theory tells us that our identities um, and how we move through the world um, are made up of, of how interlocking systems of oppression show up on our on our bodies and in our culture. And that, that those collective set of identities impact how we experience life and how systems treat us, how we show up in policy and so on and so forth. And so while doing the research, as I mentioned before, I found that um, having to sit with people who had experienced trauma um, and interview them every day, eight to 10 hours a day, was having an impact on me in that I was constantly also reliving my own trauma and it weighed heavily on me. I had to go to therapy and my therapist one day finally said, uh, you've got to figure out a way to do this research without harming yourself. And so actually Thriving Theory was born out of our attempt to create a method for um, interfacing with the public, having community engagement, and facilitating some like professional development trainings without uh, re-traumatizing or re-oppressing the participants. And so we like to think of Thrivance Theory as the interlocking and overlapping ways that we experience dignity, the overlapping ways that we encounter joy, the things that, that make us thrive and persist despite the oppression that exists around us. And so that theory is sort of the basis of everything that we do at the Thrivance Group. In, my, in, our, in our project management capacity, of course, Thrivance theory shows up as community engagement, it shows up as policy analysis, and it shows up in the research. But we also have um, this program called Thrivance Legacy, where we interact directly with transition age youth, which are young people between the ages of 18 and 26, who are entangled in the foster care system. Because in California, you're, you can stay in foster care until you're 26. Um, and so, so we have an iteration of Thrivance Theory that works there. And then we also have Thrivance Space, which is sort of a spatial manifestation of, of the theory in and of itself. So it shows up in our special events, you, you saw that maybe with our Unurbanist Assembly. Um, so it's just a theory that we feel like is at the core of infusing dignity in everything that we do. What I want to kind of zero in on is, you know, like the concept of safer streets, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's something that uh, we bring up a lot on Bike Talk 
and you know in our sort of bike centric world we we think of you know the cycling community but it obviously extends beyond just folks that cycle it's like pedestrians it's people in cars it's people that take public transportation and in relation to kind of what you're talking about it it sounds like you know with with you know like community and engagement it's like people deserve an environment that they enjoy that they can grow uh grow up in and feel safe in no matter what they're doing or what they're about or what the you know where, what their background is and uh so tell us a little bit more about what your concept of of like safe streets would look like you know yeah. uh, it, with in relation to thriving theory yeah i think just like other words that we use in the field like equity um safety is a term that could have a lot of different meanings and it could be even fluid within one perspective right so what i when i talk about safety today i might say something different tomorrow and so it's fluid um that in and of itself um, creates a challenge for the designer or for the engineer that is trying to build something that is uh, stationary and not fluid in nature, like a infrastructure in the built environment. So there's already a, a clash or an incongruence between this notion of everyone being safe in this one place that is not evolving at a rate that matches the ways we as human beings develop and evolve. That disclaimer aside, um, I enjoy having opportunities to radically imagine and reimagine safety. And I mentioned to you earlier that um, my grandfather was laid to rest. He was 92. He was laid to rest today. And, you know, he lives on the other side of the country and I haven't had enough time. I haven't spent enough time with him. Right. So there are people in my family who know him better than I do. And I was listening to the stories about um, how he would sit out on the stoop with the grandchildren. And, and it reminded me of the, like, the moments I had with, with the men who were in my life, like my older brother. He taught me to ride against traffic growing up on a bike. Mm -hmm. um, and how I remember as I got older, being obsessed with like buying new pegs from the skateboard shop to put on my bike so people could ride on the back in the front. Yeah. And like going crazy with the little um, beads that you could attach to the spokes and like having a relationship to the bike that was of course about recreation, definitely about transportation, but also like a full extension of like how I wanted to express myself. And you know, I grew up in a community that um, was 600 units of affordable housing. And so being there, um, not by design, but through how the community had to create community, our um, environment was conducive to the ways that I wanted to express myself. So we had carved out, you know, grooves in the grass through the projects, through the middle of the projects, where we knew to ride bikes. And you know, I think of examples like this about how um, I was blessed through my exposure to scarcity to be able to, to have access to a radical imagination about 
what it meant to enjoy space. And I think joy is an element of safety and that we can't take that for granted. And I think a lot of people do take that for granted because their joy is not being negotiated or threatened as frequently as it is for other people. Mm. And so now you get the freedom to think about other uses of the space where some of us are literally just trying to access it. Um, so joy is a huge part of that. A lot of people who know me know that environmental justice is really important to me. Um, and I, I think it is unfair that because so many things attack our joy and physical safety in the built environment that even within our own communities, our own black and brown communities, um, we are not talking about the toxicity of the environment itself because we are worried about not being brutalized by the police and not being attacked by vigilantes and, you know, having a sidewalk to walk on. We have not yet gotten to a point where we can talk about the toxic runoff from adjacent industries, um, the impact on our physical safety and the environment of um, freight and cargo movement in predominantly black and brown communities. Um, we definitely don't talk enough about public works. I think about places like South Central, I think about places like East Oakland, where if you look at the flood, flood zone maps, um, you realize that no one has considered um, the, the safety of houses and homes in those areas since the 1930s. Um, in the 1930s is pretty much a snapshot of low income black and brown communities today. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the housing project as, a, as an idea came about, started coming about in the 1930s, right? And so to even today, we're, we're hearing conversations about um, local governments using COVID-19 as an excuse to not uh, maintain habitability in projects. Breonna Taylor's uh, murder is now being linked to um, an investigation around um, investors gentrifying the neighborhood and conspiring with the local police department to do no-knock no raids. These are practices that were created in the 1930s. What is also born in the 1930s is redlining, which was a coupling of um, a coupling of uh, transportation-related investments, housing investors, developers, banks, and local municipalities um, to really restrict the movement and um, restrict opportunities for thriving for Black people. These things exist today. The syphilis, the syphilis, the syphilis experience experiments happened in the 1930s. Today looks a lot like that, right? So a lot of people think that um, people who are pushing up against normative constructs or notions of safety, like myself, are being alarmist or irrational. But those of us who have either immensely studied these things or who have actually lived it, know that some of these, these um, suspicions that we have and the deep-seated mistrust is not irrational at, at all. It's actually very realistic. And some people will tell you that we are already in the throes of reliving those things. 
So safety is a big word for me. When I think about um, safety, I also think about um, how we manage accountability. And I think if we're honest about, you know, wanting people to drive slower and, you know, not run people over and definitely not drive off if you run someone over, um, I think we have to have a serious conversation about what our criminal justice system has done to us um, and understand that the inequities inherent in our criminal justice system have a lot to do with why people are reluctant to hold others accountable for things like car crashes. Because we know that maybe the, the outcome of those processes would be unjust in some way, shape or form. It, it would be extreme. Uh, so we need to, as we are imagining what safety looks like outside, we need to reimagine what accountability looks like um, in the event that that safety is compromised or jeopardized. And I don't think the answer is always going to be to call the police. Right. Um, uh, the, the thing that I've learned as a, you know, as I got into cycling and became a cycling advocate, the, you know, the first sort of reaction is, well, we need more police and we need more enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then you you know, realize that that means injustice for a whole bunch of other people. And especially the way that the police tactics are where you get pulled over for a broken taillight or, you know, even, even something like drunk driving. Like I was hit by a drunk driver and, you know, I thought a lot about this and it's, it's like the punishment is so harsh for that that uh, it induces somebody to want to run. So somehow this idea of public safety ingrained in our culture being that the cops are going to be the, the bringers of public safety, that's, it's just wrong. It's, yeah. it's um, there's, you know, there's, there's, there are other ways to to do this, and uh, a lot of it. I mean, what do you think? Like engineering? There are. And yeah, there are a lot of ways to do this. I think it's a combination of um, assertive but equitable engineering. I think it is also um, the infusion of transformative justice principles, as well as um, like an interdisciplinary approach to being responsive to people. Um, like talk about someone, that a little bit more, like, yeah, like give us someone, a, give us an on the ground kind of scenario. Yeah. Someone used the word funsies today on Twitter and I said, I want to start using that word more. So like, Which, what, what's the word again? Funsies. Like people aren't doing it for funsies. And I was like, oh. I love this. So I'm going to use that right now. Um, I think that, you know, while it is terrible that people haven't developed the personal accountability to, to know to slow down in an intersection, right? Mm. Um, at the end of the day, the thing that leads up, the reasons why people um, fail to properly maintain their vehicles, are in a hurry to get somewhere, have a sense of entitlement to space, um, would evo evade, evade the law, 
have a lot to do with um, things that can be resolved through interdisciplinary approach. So maybe if people's jobs weren't located through after a two hour commute, people wouldn't feel so pressed about losing 15 seconds by slowing down at an intersection or even 15 minutes. I did a study in South LA three years ago and found that the majority of residents' responses to, if we had to slow traffic, would you be okay? And then we gave them allotments of time to choose from. Majority of people checked as much time as I need to, that as it needs to take for this place to be safer. Wow, right on. Right? And That's we have exactly, a different, yeah. we, but the, the thing is, that is their rational response to that question. What that question doesn't take into consideration is the conditions that swirl around you when you're making the choice to run through a yellow light that you know is about to turn red. I've done it before. Sure. It's, it's the fact that Uber is surging at $60 to get a quarter mile away and you've been drinking but don't have $60 to do what is the right thing in that moment. So you drive. Like there are, there are, um, sociological responses to the, the, the things that cause people to have um, inaccountable behavior in the roadway. I also think um, there are some other things, right? Like having um, resource navigators on our transit routes to support people who are struggling with um, being unhoused or struggling with mental illness, because a lot of times there's conflicts that show up between um, pedestrians, motorists, and people who are curbside residents. You know, the, all these things converge in the built environment, but that doesn't mean our responses and reactions to them have to center the built environment. You get what I'm saying? Like we're not, we're not protecting the sidewalk from people. You know, we're not protecting the intersection from people we're protecting people from harm. So our re responses need to be um, nuanced in a way that addresses why the harm is happening. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times we're putting people in these really fast cars on streets that are designed to be really fast. And it's like, you don't even think about it. You just... Mm -hmm you you have these conditions you have a big wide street so you drive fast because it feels normal mm -hmm. and uh, we don't and and a lot of times i mean you know those kinds of streets get put into neighborhoods communities of color you know i think yeah. that a lot of times you'll see in wealthy neighborhoods they have their little uh, compact traffic circles yep. and bulb outs and road diets yeah. but you know where and there is yeah even with that i would love to see a study that analyzes whether or not people are willing to speed in their own neighborhood i think when we really do an assessment of who is speeding and why we'll learn that our um, roadway networks our, our networks of roadway and our travel patterns have a lot to do with um how we intentionally designed communities to transport more privileged, wealthy white folks from the suburbs, you know, into these communities. And now that um, 
black and brown folks have and lower income folks have um, increasing opportunities to employment and the economy. These roads are literally just spaces that we get into to get to move. Like if, if there were jobs near people, then they would travel, they would not have to travel such a distance. You're less likely to speed in your own neighborhood because you know the people who live in it. Right. I, I think it's a, it's a broader land use and planning issue um, that we need to resolve. And I think a lot of the, uh, the shift lately is that, you know, the, 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 you had like the white flight communities leaving the, the city center in the fifties mm -hmm. and sixties or whenever that was. And they sort of designed these suburban kind of hellscapes that are, you know, just bedroom communities and your yeah. job was in the city. And now you've got sort of the next generations of these white people moving back to the cities and displacing people of color that were living in the cities that, that, that right. moved into the cities. And now there's this, there's this conflict of like, you know, you got a lot of, of, uh, white people living in the cities and they're like, these streets are not safe, you know, mm -hmm. and unfortunately. is also code for comfort, right? And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like a lot of us are saying the word safe, but we really mean we don't enjoy it and it's not comfortable. There right. are some real safety issues, physical safety issues, but no, they're not safe. But it's also that like, you'd like to impose your notion of safety and comfort on people who've already been living here and who have had to develop their own culture of safety in your absence with the infrastructure, the crappy infrastructure that you left them with. Right. And so going back to my brother teaching me always ride against traffic, what does that do for me if I now have a green bollard protected bike lane that's with the flow of traffic? I now feel uncomfortable. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So it's yeah. It's an imposition of values that can be resolved, um, that re requires a bit of process, um, which I know folks don't like to hear. Um, and then I would also add that none of these, most, none of these conversations really are including any, any true or extensive um, response to the, to the literal lack of accessibility for people who are disabled. So... Mm. We, have, we still haven't managed what to do with dismounting from vehicles next to protected bike lanes if you're in a wheelchair. Right, right. So there's wow. another I hate bike lanes contingency, you know? Right, right. And there's, you know, um, there's a lot of discussion amongst cyclists too. Like uh, there are people that, I mean, there are people that don't believe in any bike infrastructure as well. Um, and I on, like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, on that note, um, I've often, you know, we have, we've had guests in the past, we call them vehicular cyclists. They don't like bike lanes because bike lanes actually, in a lot of situations, are dangerous because the Department of Transportation it's always an afterthought. So they throw the yeah. bike lane in the door zone or, you know, even protected bike lanes, they, 
they have problems. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's the conversation around, well, if we can engineer a street where the, the, the speeds are not 40 and 50 miles an hour, but something more like 25 miles an hour, you may not need bike lanes because a cyclist going at 12 to 15 miles an hour with the they flow can, of traffic. Yes. Yeah, they can be in that flow of traffic. Now there's compounding issues like car marketing that tells you, you know, to you need to faster. be driving as fast as, yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> and, and there's definitely an automotive lobby in this country that is working to make sure that there is very little space for any other mode of transportation other than cars. Yeah. And yeah, so it's just, it's wild how many I think, though, yeah, I think all of this is connected to a sense of entitlement to space and our, um, our, what to me is seeming like becoming like this hyper intention to organize the space so much that like everyone has their little pocket of the street that they're entitled to. Again, that doesn't gel with the fact that we are evolving and innovative human beings. No one saw scooters coming, period. (laughs) Nobody saw robots rolling down the street with the food in them without a human being attached to them, delivering them to your door. Nobody saw that coming. And so with the way and and the rate at which um, we develop as humans is happening, it makes no sense for us to build infrastructure that is is rigid and, and static in nature and so i think i think um the african diaspora is a great example of um the beauty in um disorganized space in the roadway i think there is a natural choreography that comes about um in the roadway if you're not if you're not forcing people to stay in a certain zone and i also think that um, especially in the, the diaspora, diasporic places where um, being punitive is not a first response, that where there's truly a transformative justice structure, um, people are accountable when they make a mistake within the roadway. And right, and so, if it's not gonna, if it's not gonna affect the rest of your life, to yeah, yeah, like because you made a mistake or you, you know, drank a little too much or. Yeah, well, which is terrible, right? But there are ways that we stigmatize that. There are ways that we as a community agree that this is the wrong behavior um, and that we're not okay with it. We don't need to invite ballers and police officers into a space to to convey that message. Um, And I, I think what we saw in the 90th Ave project, although I, in Oakland, although, um, there's some issues with how the city of Oakland is managed community in that space. Um, it was really heartwarming to see uh, design implemented where the facility, the bike facility is incredibly wide and it's right down the middle of the roadway and it's got a street mural painted in it um, and everyone loves and celebrates it. Um, and the cyclists in that area, which are majority black, um, had a part in creating the design and all the city had to do was lean into it i'm uh googling that right now i'm gonna check the 90th ab Brittany brown i see i see 
I see some scraper bike wheels here. Yeah. What, what is going on here? That's, that's the, amazing. That's the bike lane. Wow. Yeah. So this I had, is just, yeah, I hadn't checked this out before. This is cool. Yeah, this is just one example of how we can um, revisit our MUTCD and our specifications and all these rules that um, really are more restrictive in nature. And since none of them get to the bottom of what we actually need, which is public works, infrastructure, and environmental justice, uh, why not take the time to, con to reorganize railways in ways that are consistent with what the residents actually want? Well, now, there's so in 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 my mind you know it's like the transportation system is this public utility right in in a lot of the uh advocacy that that i've taken part in in neighborhoods um you know like like when when people were advocating, for example, for Santa Monica Boulevard to have bike lanes going through Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. The Beverly Hills community was saying, we don't want bike riders because, you know, there's a lot of stigma to cycling. To mm -hmm. old white folks in Beverly Hills who think it's like, you know, basically a, a cyclist is a poor person on a bike and it's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's riffraff. We don't want that here. Now, you know, the arguments that 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 we would come up with is is like hey look this is a public street does the community have the right to refuse uh access to people that don't drive cars to this road that takes you from one place to the other through a city that we basically all own and so I, you know on, on one hand it's like i mean i'm looking at the scraper bike thing that is cool on the other hand, I see places like Beverly Hills that are saying, we don't want a bike lane uh, coming through our, our road. And it's sort of like, how much community input do you think in these scenarios is, is right, you know, is, is right. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's one, there is a question of access for everybody. And then there's a question of the community dictating what their roads look like. And I think a lot of communities would do what the scraper bike, you know, I, I, I think people don't want to have a busy roadway cutting right in front of their house. A lot of times mm -hmm. it's communities that are outside that demand that put political pressure. And then that roadway becomes just like, a, you know, four lane highway through somebody's neighborhood. Yeah. So, so I think, this is a great question. I love having this discussion. I think that um, when, pe when people hear community engagement and equity, there is an attempt to streamline or standardize an approach, um, which we know is not the way to go. I think that um, I remember playing Sin City when I was a kid and noticing that um, certain certain elements that I would want to drop into into the map, you, it's, you can't. They make too much money over here. You can't put what you're trying to put. You can't put a, um, those industrial waste sites that pump out the black gas. You can't yeah. drop that into certain sections of the map. 
the whole game will shut down, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everything about our field of urbanism teaches us that the only people who have autonomy in their agency are people who can pay for it that right right um and what what is confusing and upsetting to me is that this moment in time where our field has decided it is it is time to take on behavioral change it is time to impose these values it's time to to really be steadfast in our in our belief behind what makes a comprehensive complete network of mobility all that energy is directed at poor black folks (laughs) you know like why are you wasting time convincing this black woman to stop driving a car when there's an entire community on the west side of this city that has that has successfully torn out three of your bike lane projects you know like it it, it reminds me of when we all decided we was going to stop using plastic bags or that we shouldn't have them anymore. I remember my mother being like, this is crazy. Like this commercial shouldn't be airing in our neighborhood. Everyone knows black people keep their plastic black bags and use them four times. You know, like we've been recycle, reduce, reuse, close the loop. This is a cultural practice for us. And it's the same with um, giving deference in space and and having accountability in our behavior. Unfortunately, we live in a society where the the consequences of us not being accountable are harsher on us. You think we're not aware of that? And so I, I think, again, like the data will show us, since folks love data, that the people we need to be talking to first about slowing down and getting out of cars live over there. And look, they're white, you know, for the most part. Or I, I mean, the guy that the guy that ran me down was driving a ninety thousand dollar vehicle. He was a you know he was definitely a wealthy person. So listen, it's it's wealthy people. It's 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 that same stratus of of privilege, um, and I and that's not to say in the black communities we never get to a point where we um, shift in our ideals about mode choice, right? But there are so many other prevailing issues that inform mode choice for us that it's not as simple of a fix. Whereas in other areas, it's truly a choice. It's truly a choice. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of people in the urban planning sphere, white folks, will talk about taking the bus the damn bus in LA, Mm -hmm. which the bus has always sucked. And you just, it's hard to, you know, I, I took the bus all, you know, just all my life. And when you're on the bus, you don't want to be on the bus. You want to be in a car, you know? And it's hard to convey that to somebody that's gone through college and got an urban planning degree. And they're like, I'm going to take the bus today. And you're like, cool. Have fun with that. Yeah, I mean, the bus, you know, it's, it's, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the fact that we haven't invested. I mean, yes, it's, we haven't invested in the bus that, in LA. That feeling of degradation, of dehumanization, of inconvenience is by design. 
Yes. Transit networks are the practice of transit network planning stems from an era where they were trying to relegate the lesser of the human beings to a specific mode. It's, it's designed that way. We, we got to be honest about that. Right. And the fact that they, they tore out, you know, all these rail networks instead of, instead of investing in them, they tore them out and then they built these freeway networks, which were catered to people that could afford Mm -hmm. vehicles and that were living in the suburbs. They would just invest trillions of dollars really over the years in these, in these networks that, that, put the automobile and people that can afford it at the top of the food chain. And then they're like, okay, everybody else, yeah, you get on the bus, you know. That's right. And so why is it unreasonable for my elders, you know, who don't have time to sit up on Twitter and go back and forth about transportation all day? Why is it unreasonable for them to think that this moment of so-called innovation and now shifting modes is beneficial to everyone. What? How do I convince my auntie or my grandmother that that the next new transportation wave um, won't then relegate us to? Okay, well, bike lanes are for poor people, you know. Or or now that we've all shifted to riding bikes, now it's time for everyone to get off bikes because we're teleporting or whatever, you know. Like it's this is how this cycle has unfolded. We were told to stay on the bus and stay in the inner city. Why people got to where it was too inconvenient for them to use the highway networks. And now they want access to the inner city. So it's like, everybody get out your car, get out of your car, you know? And it's like, same thing with housing. Like you just got done telling me that the pinnacle of citizenship in this country was to be a single family homeowner my credit score will be higher if I own a single family home. You know, now you're telling me someone who still doesn't have a good credit score to let go of that ideal because density is important and that we need to be in apartment buildings and condominiums. And while there, there are valid benefits to um, these transitions in our collective ideals about how to use space. We're not dealing with the inequities at each transition. So it's not, it's not appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, I can fully understand can I, that. Can I try something here? Are we gonna bring on Yolanda? No, I was gonna, I was gonna say a thought. Okay. Yes, you uh, can try a thought. <laughs> right, I'm gonna try this thought. So, we might be able to check off another bingo box here. Okay. Yeah. Well, now you have to explain that whole thing, but we, you can it's go okay. back another episode. So I talk bingo. Yeah, go ahead. The, uh, the, I, I liked your idea of, did you call it disorganized streets? Uh-huh. Um, I've seen that. I've seen that suggested as a way you can have like living um, mode share, you know, without it being organized by some bureau that yeah. will then, like you said, Called change it again sh- next week. Shared space is yeah. what they call it. They take away the street markings. Oh. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think you can look a number of ways. I lived in Chicago for eight months and was stunned when I saw that their highway 
lane configuration changed three times a day using signals on the freeway. So in the morning commute, you'll have three X's and three greens that lets you know the three lanes you can travel in. That same route at 5 p.m. will have two green lanes and, and four red lanes. And it just changes in real time based on the flow of traffic and the congestion in the area. It, and any, any day the configuration will look different based on who needs access to the space. They have that um, on 4th Street here in downtown. I, for the longest time, didn't understand what the heck that meant. The little <laughs> X's and greens, but now I understand. But Nick, I didn't mean to interrupt you. We were going to bring on uh, Yolanda uh, Davis Arbor Street. Do you? Bring Perfect. Yeah. Where is she? Then hopefully no Nick can bring is, her in. Oh, Nick is oh. back. Nick, Nick you is went back. out. Nick, you were cutting time. out. Yeah. Oh, Nick, let's bring on Yolanda. She's there. We should we should bring her on, and then uh, maybe we can get this get this question out of you. Okay. All right, Yolanda. <laughs> no, you you cut off yeah. somehow. Your feed cut off. So, um, but yeah. we let's bring Yolanda on, and then try to get that question out. Yolanda, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Uh, I can't see you guys. I don't know if you can see me. I just have a black screen unless I need to re-enter on Zoom again. Well, it's up to you. I mean, yeah, we can't see you, but we can hear you. Did you oh. try? There should be a way to, you're, are you familiar with Zoom? Yeah, but there's nothing. Just a screen huh. and um, a auto box. But I don't see, like, you know, usually we have the video and a mic at the left hand. Why, why don't we try? Um, why don't we try uh, re? I can re-enter. Maybe. Yeah, let's let's yeah, try maybe. that. And okay. See what okay, happens. you guys can keep the conversation going, and yeah. then I'll try to re-enter. Uh, this is a, I, I'm really learning a lot, and I really yeah. appreciate um, Dr. No Thomas problem. you coming on, and both of you guys coming on. So this is a great conversation. Um, we we can introduce Yolanda while she's. Uh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. Got it. There we go. Hi, Miss Yolanda. Hi, Yolanda. Thank you so much. Hey. It's good to see you. Say. You too. You too. Yeah. So Yolanda Davis Overstreet is uh, a mobility justice activist and communities of color urban sustainabilist. Did yes. I say that right? Sustainabilist. Oh, yes. Urban and urban saying too. Yeah. Founder of Ride in Living Color, an upcoming community-based uh, organization ground truths with fiscal sponsor social good fund based out of the bay area so i probably totally butchered all of that but um <laughs> welcome to the show thank you Don. Mm -hmm. and thanks for coming on um we're we're here with dr uh dr destin thomas and nick richard and uh we wanted to bring you on early just to be part of this conversation so, yeah Definitely an important conversation. And yeah. you, uh, I, I thank you guys first off uh, for just making this happen, making this platform happen. Um, it, 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 it really is an exciting time, but it's also a time I'm sure that most black lives have to, you know, reflect on, wow, our narrative matters now. You know, um, I've been doing uh, writing, living color and working to gather nar narratives for the past nine years. 
um, in particular, Black Lives on Bikes um, from a health perspective, uh, because everything I do is based off of my own personal experience of both gaining knowledge and actually transforming my life um, that has taken me year by year into the space that I am now. So, uh, you know, when we've, I've gone to a lot of conferences over the years, and it seems like when I mention anything related to our, our communities of color as a grassroots advocate need help. You know, we need, uh, we don't have, our, our communities are disenfranchised. Everybody understands what that means. We don't have bike lanes. We don't have crosswalks. Um, the, the sanitation is, is not good, but yet we are in our bicycling circles saying we want to have more uh, people of color on bikes, more African-Americans on bikes, but it's not safe for us to be on bikes. And so I, I'm just happy that, you know, it, I'm not happy that it took coronavirus and George Floyd um, to, to hear our voices, but we're here now. Um, and the work that I'm doing is both through my own personal journey, understanding the power that um, knowledge and evolving, where that can take us as a people. Um, and that, in fact, not only will that take us um, in this awareness where we can sit at the table like Destiny is talking about, that we can be in more decision-making positions, but that we too can heal through this process, um, that we too can explain um, on a cross-platform what we're experiencing, what we need to advocate for, and uh, the initiatives and policies, you know, all the way to the structuring of our communities have to change. And so I simply got to this point by riding on a bike. I simply got to the point of kind of this world revealing itself to me, its truth. And so that's where I took Ride and Living Color and now expanding um, in these coming weeks, uh, starting a community-based organization called Ground Truths. And Ground Truths really operates on the premise that you know, everything meets at that intersection. You know, my black life, your white life, every other colored life um, meets at this intersection of, of the construct. And how can we together basically create more ground truths about what our realities are so that we can um, not only have bike lanes, but so that we can exist in communities that are more sustainable and healthier. Yeah. Now, it sounds like you're, so Yolanda, you're coming from a, a space of like, we, we want to see more, more bike lanes. We want to see more black folks on bikes. And Dr. Thomas, you're kind of saying, you know, if we don't want to be forced into that, we want we want a uh, some kind of a, a uh, I guess a cultural ne negotiation. Is that the right way to put it? Or yeah, I think I think we should. I think our use of we're you know we're calling things bike lane because that's the mechanism that the planning space gives us for an organized way to ride bikes. Right. I think Yolanda and I agree that ha having as many mode choices as possible is a great idea for Black people. I think I, you know, I'm in love with my childhood experience riding a bike, but once I left my own neighborhood, not so much. And so I think that there, there's value and power and joy in bicycling as a mode. But I think 
we need to evolve in what we call what we consider to be a bike lane and i think that our community the black community broadly speaking needs to be a part of that conversation this time around and i'm loving i'm loving the the use of um, the increased use of pavement markings not in love with the lack of care underneath the pavement but i do i do like the idea of um have, having um, cultural markings as bicycle facilities as opposed to a stripe of green paint um, right it's like uh yeah you know it's boring yeah I, it, actually uh you know i i visited the netherlands which is supposed to be the bicycle utopia of the world mm-hmm. and i rode city to city out there because there's bike networks that take you everywhere Mm-hmm. And after a while, uh, it was like every city started to look the same. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, looking at this 90th Avenue Oakland project, um, how fantastic would it be to get into a city? And, you know, I guess some of the lines would be consistent across, yeah. the, you know, the transportation grid. But then you have these, um, you know, like the scraper bike wheels. That's like. Oakland bikes that says yeah. Oakland bikes, you know, it's the community yeah. came out and participated in that. So you, I want to share space with Yolanda, but before, before I want to say one more thing. Um, there's this there, I think about how, how black people are really good at naturally creating spaces for themselves, right? Culturally, we're just good at it. There is Savannah, Georgia is my favorite city in the world. I think every planner has their favorite city. I love Savannah for the tree canopies. They just drip onto you and the light shines on you. It's it's so beautiful. I've never seen anything like it. There is a riverfront in Savannah that is completely made out of cobblestone. And it is the most traversed pathway for people riding bikes, which people in LA would totally freak out if they had to ride a bike on some some. cobblestones you know it would be a it would be everyone would be at the city council meeting but in this community people were adamant about do not remove the cobblestones because the grandmothers there had firsthand stories of I get chills talking about it each cobblestone each row of cobblestones was laid by a different family that had been freed from slavery Moving it for the sake of continuity and bike lanes would be an insult to the to the liberation story coming out of that community to the extent that people who love biking know what safe biking infrastructure should be want to ride on the cobblestones. We have to be flexible as planners and engineers to lean into that. What do we do with the cobblestones now so that it's technically safe to ride on our planning story should start there not we're removing the cobblestones what do y'all want us to put there instead that's not it i mean just hearing that story i would be like fuck taking the cobblestones away that's amazing i mean yeah and i i would piggyback off of that because that's exactly i think um also where i come from while we talk about the built infrastructure. Um, a lot of my work has been in the human infrastructure. Yeah. And so while, yeah, we do need to determine how 
these lines will be laid and which is very important as destiny saying and 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 the purpose of how these will work um, based on our story our narratives but i also believe that um, any outdoor activity including biking and that has been my experience is how it brings people together and in particular i would like to see bicycling um, number one become a safer uh, recreation and or way of commuting for black lives. So while I'm promoting and I understand the freedom and the, um, the benefits of bicycling both as a commuter and as a recreational, I'm not a commuter, but as a recreational cyclist, I understand both sides. And but right now, black lives are not safe, really going anywhere. Um, and so this is this is a very perplexing conversation to have because we have to we have to talk about it almost like we're we're well we are in two or three different realities. So we have to be bi reality or as we say bi uh, lingual. We have to be um, kind of this shifting of where in our psyche we are when we're having this conversation um, with anyone in terms of making recommend reimagining. And I think we're all good at reimagining. But one thing is for sure right now is that we need to make sure that what we do today plays a role in saving a life. I just saw um, something that was posted about a young man being um, uh, arrested or killed basically, but he was, he was bicycling. And I, I think the police pulled him off his bike or and harassed him because he didn't have a light on his bike. And he ended up being murdered um, by the police along with walking to a park or a child walking to the park. So I think in every conversation we have moving forward, these are realities that we shouldn't push to the side as we reimagine what our environments can be, but we need to reimagine how are we gonna save lives while bicycling? How are we gonna save black lives and brown lives while moving around in open space? And that also includes being on a bike. Um, but on a positive note, Bicycling, the activity of bicycling, you mentioned the scraper bikes, Don, um, the uh, professional cyclists like uh, Nelson Bales, uh, Rashad Bahati, I think you guys had some of them on your shows. You know, these are actually opportunities that many of our children of color can pursue. Justin Williams, um, along with our social advocates that are both rolling and making justice change um, in our environment. And these will be the stories that I would like to, to pull in and quick narratives, they, you know, in the 30 minute um, show that you guys have asked me to come on and do, which I'm calling We the People, Black Lives Rolling. And basically, um, I want to be able to have that big question per uh, our 30 minute segment and then give these a lot of unheard narratives and if we have heard them we haven't heard them enough and that we start really kind of putting it out there with their contact information so that we can all together start connecting the dots better to save lives and create better bicycling and, and outdoor experiences cool yeah that's we're great. excited yeah. to have you uh come on to the show and do that so um that's good news and we we need that we're yeah in my life yeah yeah. nine years, every new narrative that I've heard has inspired me to take just that extra step. So I think that's the healing component of it, the human. And we like, we learn from each other and then we create these friendships 
And I mean, like all these folks across the globe, actually, that I've been able to stay in contact with over these nine years is it's healing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're definitely looking to forward to the, to the segment. Yeah. We want to, we want to hear those stories. And, um, you know, it's like, I see Sean and Justin Williams on Instagram and follow them and they've raced in my Wolfpack races and just love seeing those guys do what they do. And I know there's a whole lot more stories out there too. So um, we're really looking forward to that segment. So we're, we're glad Yolanda, to have you on. Can you t tell us some of your other affiliations that you may not have mentioned? Um, yes, this, this, this bicycling journey has just opened up all kind of uh, roads, but I am on the West Adams neighborhood where I grew up and it is considered a red line district um, that is actually going through a lot of gentrification and change now. Um, so I'm the vice president of the, the neighborhood council and I would, I'm using this platform to learn about community and, and, and actually probably one of the truest forms of democracy that cannot be shut down um, because every neighbor needs to, you know, they're able to share their perspectives. Um, so yeah, I'm that. I'm also on the advisory board of People for My Mobility Justice. Um, and also a graduate uh, from the urban sustainability. Um, I went back to school at this stage of my life, and so anything's possible, um, and got a graduate uh, degree in urban sustainability. And so I'll be involved um, uh, with their faculty on our, um, our next residency. And so this will be kind of things that's being discussed here is how can we pull that into this next conversation? Yeah, well, we had you on, Stephen Box probably on while he was uh, co-hosting a, a few shows. I'm glad he did. And so this will be yeah. great. Uh, I think just yeah. a couple other, you know, this being a, a child of the 60s, um, you know, this is one of the books I just wanted to share that I am probably in that group of one of the yeah. last childs in the woods. And so I think actually kind of my experience, and I, I'm so happy to hear Destiny actually just talk about her experiences of being in an open space, because it really is kind of like what we did in the 60s in terms of moving around in space. And I will say, I kind of feel like it was safer then, even though we did have, uh, you know, a lot of racial tensions occurring. I never experienced in this neighborhood that I'm in today, um, the racial um, tension and, um, and threats that are occurring in this time. So that, that book I wanted to bring, and then this one, which is just another really good read called, and I think it applies to Black Faces, White Spaces by Carolyn Finney. Um, and I think, you know, that's what we're talking about too, when Destiny's brought up in terms of who were these spaces designed for and, and how we've been moving around in them and how are we going to, and I believe in this transforming of America, um, construct spaces so that we are a, a part uh, that is designed for us. Uh, it's a lot of dismantling that has to take place, but I think just from a perspective of understanding that, and also my, my daughter had a very terrible experience, which I'll talk about another time, but um, basically, you know, that we're able to just get on top of our transportation, um, racial, uh, harm that is happening on our streets daily now with, um, with racists either blurting, screaming out of their cars or it's happening in Lyft or walking down the street and, and people are calling 
you know, derogatory names. This is, we can't even move partly in space now with what's occurring. Well, we only have a few minutes. Uh, what, what do you think, Don? How do you want to? Something's, something's going on with your audio, okay. Nick. Yeah, mute it. Um, so is that my phone that's doing that? Okay, sorry guys. The Zoom, Zoom thing is kind of weird. So um, I don't know why it's still doing it. Everyone has to be muted while one person talks. Okay, Nick, you want to manage that mute? <laughs> I always put it on Nick. Um, so I guess in closing, you know, I, I always want to understand better the, the process to getting to utopia, right? Like, like uh, everybody has their definition of utopia. It's like, how do we, how do we get there? What, what are the, what are the steps right now? And, and maybe a, a, I know it's probably very impossible to answer, but what, what can we do in the next, for the next few steps here to, to get to this, to where we want to be? And then I'd let both of you guys talk. Um, maybe we can have Dr. Thomas uh, give it a shot and then discuss between you guys. Like, we'll let you guys have the floor. So, so I have two um, solutions that I've been thinking about. Um, the first one, which can happen tomorrow, especially if we go into another stimulus package, is that um, local municipalities and the federal government should completely subsidize the cost of transportation and mobility um, for entire communities. Not every community, but there should be an analysis done um, on, on how lack of access to mobility is constraining certain communities and those costs should be subsidized across every mode, including vehicles, but definitely drop off some free bicycles. I've been saying that for a while now. Um, more, more, more longer term, but also near future, near term is, um, I've been doing a lot of research independently around the development of a reparations package for the transportation industry specifically. And I think every industry needs to um, look at their legacy and contribution to, to slavery and its impacts. And um, that, that we will start to see this conver these conversations will be much easier to have um, once some atonement has been made for the decisions and behaviors of yesteryears that are still impacting us today. And so um, I actually will be publishing a list of 20 um, reparations policies um, that cities can enact right away. Um, we don't know which publication it will go into. There are two that are that I'm working with to determine where it fits best. Um, but I think reparations and subsidizing mobility, while the government also invests in um, long-range planning and and uh, public works infrastructure, all of that put together makes safety a much more um, achievable goal. I'll just add on to that, um, that I believe we need to have more foot soldiers as uh, 
Channing Martinez at the Strategy Center um, had referred to when in our conversations, whether they're you know, foot soldiers, rolling soldiers, um, and, and, by, and how can we do that? Obviously, I believe we need a lot more education. I need, I, and basically, what type of education? I feel that healing um, has to play a major role, and I see healing as first being able to hear our uh, community members. Um, we need to listen and hear narratives. And through that process, uh, what we do is we began to educate, but on a justice-based level. And that basically will open up um, our psyches and our movement um, in the cities and towns that we live. And then we start taking action. And that action is standing up for our human rights. And, uh, and through this whole entire process, healing is occurring. And then basically change um, begins to happen because we build awareness through each and every one of our foot and rolling soldiers. And then that is how that these individuals, as we're all talking about, can sit at our tables and make decisions about how our cities are laid out. Um, I, and everything I speak on is something that I have lived on. Everything I say is a testimony to what I have gone through. And it almost appears to be kind of an interventive um, experience that I've had um, to wake up um, my psyche uh, be, and, and to be able to do the work that still has to be done. Well, that was great. I didn't, when you said utopia, I didn't think we'd finish within five minutes, but that, was, that worked. <laughs> that's the, that's the, first, the first steps. So, um, okay. Um, let's we're we're coming to the end of the show and i want to give everybody a chance to um put out their their social media and uh you know any website links where where folks can contact you guys and uh follow you guys thank you both for coming on the show um you know we're we're trying to you know nick and i are trying to educate ourselves and um I feel like I've learned a lot and I feel like this discussion has been great. So thanks again. And, uh, you know, let's, let's get the, uh, your social media contacts and, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll close out the show with that. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Des the planner. That's also my handle on Instagram. Um, the, the page isn't being used yet, but that's where we'll debut, um, this dignity, photos project that I've been doing to capture dignity in the built environment. You can find our work at thrivingsgroup.com. You can find our membership based at unurbanistassembly.com, which launches next week. And then there is a segment about our work at the Thrivings Group and our analysis of slow streets um, that will air on Good Morning America on Monday the 20th in the third hour. Okay, um, for now you can find uh, my information on Ride and Living Color, a Facebook page, also a Twitter page, and I will be posting all the updates for Ground Truths that will be launching in the next couple of weeks. I'll post that on my Ride and Living Color outlets be as an extension and not a replacement of Ride and Living Color. And also uh, you can look up uh, People for Mobility Justice and the work that we are doing there. And also uh, just an upcoming project I'm working on with Go Human, uh, SCAG on a outreach 
campaign on COVID-19 and public spaces uh, in the coming month. Thank everybody. Okay, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yolanda, um, call yeah. me. We're allowed to talk to each other now. <laughs> all right awesome thanks both for uh for coming on the show and we look forward to having yolanda back on and, and dr thomas we would love to have you back i on. like you be on yes that's me on that show too okay of course okay okay awesome that was uh thank you nick and don thank thanks you. yeah thanks guys thank um Signing off. Have a good weekend. Yeah, have a great weekend, everybody. This is your host, Don Ward and Nick Richard. And uh, we'll see you next time on Bike Talk. Yes. All right. Take care, guys. I rise in the morning and greet the day. Pull out the bike and I'm on my way. The transportation shows I care. Every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas, a tiny carbon footprint up your ass. I'm on a motherfucking bike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 